Hello, everybody. Thank you for coming uh, to yet another of the Rashan's inspiring and challenging lunchtime um, affairs. Uh, I bring greetings also from the Center for Folklore Studies, which is a co-sponsor with the Rashan of this talk. And we're very happy to welcome today James Karen, Dr. James Karen, who comes from the University of Pennsylvania, where he is um, one of uh, hardworking crew that's basically reinventing South Asian studies and building it back up. Historically, it was a place where South Asian studies was, was really active and excellent, and it had a, sort of a occultation for a little while, but they're working on it very um, effectively and with very interesting developments in, in both programming and personnel. So uh, we thank him for that. and. Um, I should give a little bit of information about what he's been up to since getting his dissertation done and getting his doctorate in the spring of 2009. The dissertation topic was Cultural Histories of Pashtun Nationalism, Public Participation, and Social Inequality in Monarchic Afghanistan, 1905-1960. Obviously, historic uh, historical information that's not readily available in the West, and I can say reading um, some of his dissertations, some of his other publications, he has an incredible um, success in contacting Pashtun scholars and intellectuals who have helped him to construct this history, and um, I should also say that his language capacities are non-trivial. This is working with Pashtuns in original sources, which is also not something we see enough of in either political science or history in our world. So it's uh, he's much to be thanked for this work, which is now coming out um, in article form, and we'll hear some more about the general um, issues that arise. Um, his doctorate, as I said, is from the University of Pennsylvania. His, his BA in political science was from Temple. And um, just in terms of other things, in the works. Um, he has various articles that are just coming out. There's one coming for, forthcoming in the coming year on rural social history through popular poetry, oral documents and weaponized publics in eastern Afghanistan, 1950, um, which I, I should also add, and I'll, I'll stop with this because I'm sure we want to hear from him more than you want to hear from me, um, that one of the things he does that's extremely important and that is done with uh, great thoroughness and responsibility is to be able to document the relationship between Pashtun writings and Pashtun oral communications where, politically speaking, the rubber really hits the road, is where um, the, the discourse, the public discourse on, of, po of poetry, among other things, articulates both ethical and political um, dimensions of Pashtun life, and that's something that, has, that needs doing in a lot of parts of the world. It's been needing doing for um, Pashtun speakers, and now he's doing it. So we thank him very much for his work and, and the work we'll see in the coming years, and welcome him here. Thank you very much. Please welcome James Caron. Ah, well, great. Um, thanks to the Mershon Center and the Center for Folklore Studies and Margaret Mills in particular um, for inviting me out here. Um, so my topic obviously split between Mershon Center and Folklore Studies um, is a difficult kind of um, set of sponsors to kind of speak to both of them. So what better kind of topic than Taliban poetry. So that's what I'm going to do. Um, it's, yeah, 
This essay is a really preliminary reflection on the interplay between religious students or talibs as a recurring trope in Pashto expressive arts and the interplay between that and Talib as real social actor. Now, I particularly try to draw out older cultural roots of this trope that might be overlooked in non-Pashtun public images of the idea, um, but which undeniably remain part of the contested bundle of perceptions related to Taliban more locally in the region. But at the same time, beyond the realm of ideas, the uh, this um, talk points out earlier variations on social institutions, um, which have been really quite underappreciated in historical literature. Um, what I mean, there have long been actually semi-itinerant bands of grassroots intellectuals known as Taliban by the people around them and by themselves, perhaps operating on local circuits uh, linked to particular shrines or mosques or groups of villages or all three which were nonetheless integrated over long distances um, via networks that cut across things like tribe. Um, now, so it's this cultural history which at least some activists in contemporary movements have consciously recalled, even if direct institutional or genealogical linkages to present-day Taliban are non-existent. <clears throat> On the subject of modern Taliban, um, there's a paradox involved in thinking about contemporary Taliban, broadly speaking. So on the one hand, we have to note the multitude of differing factions, uh, each with relatively shallow roots in terms of time depth, um, only tenuously linked to each other, if at all, um, particularly in Pakistan, but even in Afghanistan as well. Um, but secondly, there's sort of, like on the other hand, there's a brand name Unity that links them all not in organizational terms, but in popular awareness across the region. Um, so it's, it's a name, at least, in other words, um, which new factions are able to capitalize upon merely by adopting a particular persona and using or operating within the brand. So um, there, like, for example, what began as essentially a societal shorthand in Afghanistan from Mullah Muhammad Omar's original movement was adopted formally by Bithla Masood's Waziristan-based movement like 15 years later. Um, so these two apparently conflicting observations are linked to a third, uh, which is the general assumption behind this talk here today, that the idea of Taliban in Pashtun society is a collective persona that political activists, which is to say the Taliban, are able to inhabit and control, but only to some extent. A constraint to their control uh, of the brand lies in the visions that society creates about them externally. Um, and perhaps for this reason, the official communications of the resurgent Alan Taliban tend to um, speak of themselves through names like the Mujahideen or actually nowadays the parallel government of the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. Is this disavowal um, because the brand is diluted or because the brand is overdetermined? Um, I say actually both. Um, the brand name Taliban, whichever way you choose to look at it, uh, has far deeper roots than the contingent organizations that have come to monopolize it. And that uh, also, it has been by no means static in, its, uh, in the meanings and perceptions attached to it. And so, um, to conclude the intro here, um, 
my kind of take on the thing. Any true history of Taliban and Pashtun society has got to take into consideration both aspects. That is the concrete and the imagined, um, or the socio-political and the cultural history together. It shouldn't be reduced, in other words, to either the real social actors who have been identified as Taliban, either by themselves or others, nor should it be reduced to the evolving range of meanings that um, societies invested in the idea of Taliban. Um, I don't want to talk on my sources too long, but I think I want to talk about them a little. This is actually part of a longer paper um, in which I didn't draw on an exhaustive range of resources uh, in terms of either quantity, um, well, mostly quantity. In fact, I did draw upon a as diverse a range of indigenous mediations of Taliban uh, that I could find. So transcribed folklore, biographical directory is what I call Tazkirah, uh, memoirs and recollections, modern poetry and modern media such as like printed chapbooks, the kind that you can get for 10 rupees on a street corner, um, all the way to online streaming video. Like, I mean, I don't know if you guys are aware, if you search for Pashto poetry on YouTube, probably one thing in 10 is Taliban poetry. Um, so today, this uh, paper will only have a couple of sources, unfortunately. Um, now, in presenting primary sources, I want to kind of flesh out and complicate expressed ideas about Taliban that Pashtuns themselves created, the better to enrich our understanding of the social and cultural history of the, um, let's call it the informal mediascape uh, across the foothills of Afghanistan and Pakistan. So the kind of earliest things that we have um, are like proverbs and two-line folklore snippets tied to variations on a longer story, which is the Qisa or story of Talib Jan and Gulbashra, which is a folk romance. Um, uh, this is the first kind of references, in other words, to Taliban as a specific social type, um, uh, well, a specific romantic countercultural social type. In, actually, as opposed to the use of the word Talib as just a bare reference to anybody who studies, right? I mean, anybody is a Talib who studies, but here we're talking about particularly kind of a countercultural figure. Um, in Talib John Gulbashra, actually, the Talib is both Talib John and a bunch of other Talibs are depicted as outsider lovers, basically travelers in uh, in itinerant yet morally respectable occupation related to affairs of the mind uh, and such, um, whose life represents an opposition to the mundane political and uh, p uh, material fixity of settled life. Now, tracing the trope, I guess, as it appears over time is one way to, uh, in folklore collections, is one way to begin drawing a genealogy of the idea. Um, but the same is true in reflections um, in poetry from more elite domains, which uh, are usually tend to be more easily placeable in terms of who composed them and when, uh, but actually tend to operate on even more kind of abstract, metaphorical, metaphysical levels. So I'm going to present examples of both of those. Um, right. Now, Talibs have not only been passive participants in public speech, of course, uh, Part of the way they got framed as a discrete social phenomenon in the first place, unlike the case in other neighboring societies, for example, Punjab, uh, is their activities in carving out, actually, 
something of a youth counter-public of their own. So this Taliban culture was an adjunct to scholastic networks and institutions, but was autonomous from them to a limited extent, as we'll see. Since the middle of the 20th century at least, and probably much further back, um, Taliban had created their own real institutions that backed up the world of ideas. Um, that is to say, through cross-regional uh, re cross mediation and organization. Um, explicit reports to this, essentially where I'm getting this information, come through in a very few of my favorite kind of source, the biographical directories, or tezkeras, and in some secondary Afghan language literature in disciplines like folklore and ethnomusicology. Um, a researcher, Mamad uh, yeah, Aref Garwal, traced a 1943 reference in Kabul Kalanid, like the yearly almanac, um, a reference by an older folklorist, Mamad Gulnuri, um, to Taliban atarns, which is a type of popular dance. As, and he mentions them as differing from their mainstream counterparts in all Pashtun regions, I quote, to varying degrees, which suggests something of a subculture in development. By the time Garwal was writing in the early 80s, plenty more scholarship had developed for him to cite regarding separate forms of poetry and dancing that were particular only to Taliban parties. Um, but the best source, actually, that we have is memoir and recollection. Now, best, I say, in that they're explicitly descriptive. At the same time, they're the least forthcoming of all. Um, so this empirical gap makes a close reading of tropes and semiotics and uh, the like in folklore all the more important, if less than felicitous as a historical method. Um, what I mean is this method can't really aid in geographically specific rooted history that illustrates diverse experiences of Pashtun societies. Um, but it can at least illustrate some aspects of ideology in a hybrid oral and literate Pashtu language public sphere. Um, that have been shared across regions in a common cultural historical patrimony. And actually, that calls our attention to the fact of what I've been calling like the informal mediascape. Um, so that's actually um, you know, a blessing in disguise. Um, with that, let's talk about some of those ideologies. Um, the first one, which I've already alluded to that I'm going to discuss, is youthful passion against structured authority. Um, at the outset, I should point out that the majority of references to Pashtun Taliban in secondary literature in Afghan language sources point usually merely just to largely rural students in a traditional situation um, where individual students apprentice themselves to a teacher and learn as much as possible before moving on to someone else. Um, sometimes memorizing and mastering ideas in extraordinarily complex Arabic texts, like I'm thinking from the 30s, there's this one scholar, uh, Qiyamuddin Khadem, who he memorized the entirety of the Isaguji, which is like um, a medieval commentary on Aristotle that I mean, it's just incredibly tricky to read in translation. It must be even more tricky in Arabic. Um, it informed all of his political philosophy for years to come. I mean, we're, but we're still talking about essentially a guy from a village who goes up into a mountain to study with a guru on a mountaintop. This is the way that a lot of learning appears to have been conducted from biographical directory sources. Um, anyway, students could travel really quite widely in the quest for more stimulating texts and ever more connected teachers. Um, in eastern Afghanistan, essentially Ningarhar, 
Lagman, Kunar province, Logar, um, that general area. <clears throat> in the East, Tazkiras as well as other secondary literature tell us that local scholarly networks often converged on a center of gravity on the outskirts of Jalalabad um, in the intellectual and devotional networks that were forged by uh, Mullah Najmuddin, the Sahib of Hada. Um, but that was by no means the only center of the activity. With these kind of decentered networks, right, anytime you're looking at it from one particular center, it looks like the center of everything until you go to a different one and look out from there. Um, meanwhile, the higher institutions of the Peshawar Valley and, if you're enterprising enough, the Gangetic Plain in India uh, seem in many of the sources to have held the greatest regional cachet, um, blending into the Dioband Seminary in the 20th, late 19th century. In these middle and upper educational registers, the hard-to-recover world of the marginal Pashtun Talib starts to merge with a far better documented um, universe of Urdu language, religious education. However, we should also note a continuum between those serious quote-unquote students whose stories have made it into history books as individual intellectuals and some of the other practices fostered by educational networks and young men's search for all that mobile education could bring in addition to knowledge. Uh, and I ask, perhaps could it be that subsequent historiography rather than actual experience has separated sober youth scholasticism from the romanticized lifestyle of the wandering Talib band of exuberant young Pashtun men in the mid-20th century. The two are not always so easily separated in local public imagination even to this day, as we'll see in the remainder of this talk. Um, yeah, note for example the earliest detailed account that I've found of a wandering Talib band. Now, so like Nuri's cryptic marginal comment that I alluded to earlier, this relates to about 1943. It dates to the time that its author, Ajmal Kharak, uh, was serving in the Shrine Village and Traditional Learning Center in Ziarat Kaukaseb, which is now in Noshera in Pakistan. Um, and it's worth quoting at length because it's really quite fascinating. He says, describing a particular individual, Waimullah. So Waimullah was from Danduka village, Yusufzi. He was a renowned jokester and had oral and extemporaneous poets with him too. He was trained in the traditional education of the time and in his body and physique looked to be a severe and sturdy Pashtun. At all times, he had 20 to 30 students along with him and wherever they were, when the time for the lessons came, he would also just teach them. But it was usually the exuberant, carefree uh, students, that sort, who would travel with him of the sort who just studied so that they could say they were students. And their real job was joking, buffoonery, exuberant acting out, atharn dancing, and eating the ready-made food that people gave them. From his external appearance, no one would have guessed this. And looking at Waimullah, one would get the impression of a great sober scholar, or alim. But the mouth on him was such that if anybody approached him, he would ridicule the person to such an extent that no one else would have the temerity to take his attention. His thing was that he'd go with his students from village to village. They'd take payment from the Khans, Maliks, and other respectable people of the village and amuse them with jokes and buffoonery and with insulting poems about those who opposed them. And if anybody didn't give them payment, they would shame them in village after village. Waimullah would stand with the students in a field and a student would begum, begin beating on a barrel drum uh, while the rest would play tambourines. And Mullah Gwai himself would tell jokes and sing poems while the students behind him would let out cries, um, thrash their heads, this is the type of dancing, uh, or 
like dance of full-on atharna, which is a pretty complex dance. And all the villagers would sit and watch, laughing, like a spectatorship type uh, relationship. Um, it's worth emphasizing that the mullah didn't do this work in order to earn money, but rather for pleasure. This was one of the features of how they spend their time. They would spend their own time in exuberant, carefree happiness and would also make the people happy." End quote. Now, besides Ajmal Khatak's descriptive re recollections outlined above, the literary writer in him, he's one of the most famous poets of the 20th century um, in Pashto, the literary writer in him gives more insight into how society viewed the persona of the Talib in a well-known poem of his. Um, in contrast to other social actors' material concerns, here, the Talib's thought of paradise are taken from the imagery of the half-religious, half-folk romance chapbook that he's reading. I mean, you'll just see what I mean. Says Khadak, I asked Amullah, what do you think paradise is like? He ran his fingers through his beard and said, well, fresh fruits and rivers of milk. Because the mullah is always out for his stomach, right? And the traditional um, um, stereotype, I guess. Uh, accepting the mullah is the head of the Talib band. Yeah. So fresh fruits and rivers of milk. A Talib was sitting nearby. I asked him, what do you say? He put aside the book of Zulekha that he was reading and said, beautiful women with tattooed green dots on their cheeks. A Khan, or a rural leader, raised his head from a lengthy prostration. What is your opinion, Khan Seb, I asked. He adjusted his turban and said, luxuriously furnished and perfumed mansions. Nearby, a laborer stood in his tattered clothes. I asked him, do you know what paradise is? He wiped the sweat from his brow and said, well, it's a full stomach and deep sleep. Ajmal Khatak was an um, early Marxist activist, in case you didn't know, um, and who also founded Paradoxically, the Haqqaniya Madrasa in Akora Khatak, which trained the majority of the Taliban's, like the modern Taliban's core cadres, interestingly. Um, end quote. Anyway, Talib's liminality, which is their interaction with, yet separation from ordinarily, ordinary society, perhaps allowed society to superimpose this sense of abstraction onto the persona of Talib as a young man inhabiting like this dream-like landscape of fantasy. The two types of accounts, Talib as actor and Talib as trope, are blended in a rather more poetic account from Afghanistan by, uh, um, by a scholar named Zakriyam Lothar. So this is from the preface to his highly fascinating Tuskara of his, um, of Pashto poets who used the pen name Talib for themselves, thereby illustrating like a persona that they've adopted, at least in some of the cases. It's harder to make that case for all of them in his book. Quote, before, when educational programs didn't have their current form, education could only be had in the madrasa and the mosque, and this was the only route to literacy. Students would go to distant countries for knowledge and would bring back with themselves treasuries of knowledge and information and various types of books and divans, uh, poetic collections. Talibs had one part in each year for travel and recreation, which they would spend in milas or outdoor festivals, and atarns, and they would gather up money for themselves, which they called subat. Um, Pashtuns viewed Talibs with respect, um, and in order to make the case, here are a few Landais, which are two-line poems from Pashtu folk literature, which praise the Talibs. Uh, he says, the Taliban have come, parties and parties of them, but the Talib of my heart has not come, I shall die. Next one, don't make Taliban into lovers, God, and thereby add the sufferings of love unto the sufferings of knowledge. Next one, the Taliban have climbed up to the hill country, but myself, my beloved's eyes have struck me down, so I stayed. Um, 
The reason why Talibs are so praised in Landais is that they would spend many years gone and out of their homeland, uh, what he means, which can mean just like where their village is. Uh, Pashtun girls would depict this long journey of theirs in the form of Landais, and sometimes from among them, true love would find the form it takes in the folkloric legend of Talibjan and Gulbashara. Now, I like subsequently looking at the, all of these small uh, Landais that I just quoted actually come from a very old uh, transcription of Talibjan and Gulbashara. Anyway, is there any reason to try and separate the fanciful from the factual? It seems important to note that the romance of the persona, as well as the fun involved in the lifestyle, uh, in order to highlight their role as a sort of fluid masculine youth counterculture standing in opposition to the voice of sober authority. Um, right. Um, the fun of living this Talib subculture during the recreational season and the pleasure that audience got from their performances came from the fact that it was an alternative to a different set of established norms, which is to say purely secular landed power. In most iterations of Talib Jangul Bashra, um, basically, the romance takes place between Talib John and one of the Taliban and a king's daughter or landowner's daughter, maximizing the scandal value as well as the contrast between marginality and power, but landed power. Um, but beyond this sort of symbolic token, it seems that the fluidity and mobility of Taliban in mid-20th century on either side of the mountains is related to real things. Um, it, an accelerated social and economic process of rootedness in territory. So in Afghanistan, where colonial and monarchic politics both uh, in their um, intersection meant that everyday people were more and more cut off from the global economy via India since the 1930s, there was an upswing in investment in landed power uh, and ties to the monarchy. This brought prestige and mediated at least some link to the outside world. Uh, this was accompanied by a solidification of landed, reflexively Pashtun values of gravitas, sobriety, and intermediary lordship on the grassroots level. In this case, an analysis of Talib Party's activities would be roughly similar to what the sociologist Asif Bayat does uh, when he reads Victor Turner and Bakhtin as carnivalesque or extending the politics of joy, as he calls it, into struggles against hierarchy at large. Um, we get a direct glimpse of this politics of fun in an institutional sense in Ajmal Khartak's uh, account above. So by virtue of their mobility, Talibs began to carve out a public zone of anti-hierarchical speech. It would not be easy to criticize or lampoon local power in a local setting, but by extending their activities across wide swaths of the countryside, transcendent of local control, or under the radar, whichever you want to call it, Mullah Gwai's party was able to insulate themselves from the repercussions that local power purely would have and give voice to local criticisms uh, in so doing against basically Khans, Maliks, etc. at least the ones who weren't playing by the Talib's rules that the Talib's imposed. Um, this actually also played into anti-colonial movements. So anti-colonial movements in British India tended to reflect the same sort of uh, political geography as colonial state 
Um, and this is what we're talking about with Ajmal Khartak's direct example. So even like the anti-colonial nationalist mass movements in Northwest Frontier Province tended to be rooted in the same geographies as the state imposed. So we're talking about market towns and the villages in their orbits. In contrast, Taliban were rooted in like local educational networks, like around shrines in the traditional centers of the countryside before um, imperialism kind of retextured the, the administrative geography of Northwest Frontier Province. So in fact, um, when you have these mass movements appropriating traditional folk festivals at these um, local shrines and using like poetry as a platform for nationalist ideology, Taliban too, Waimullah came and disrupted one of those too. And Ajmal Khatak as a Marxist nationalist also kind of notes this with, you know, really sort of bemusement. Um, how, yeah, he came in and wrecked our party just like he wrecks the local Hans and Malik's kind of um, struggles. Um, <clears throat> right, so in other words, once that form had been appropriated by nationalist kind of activists, um, Mullah Wai reappropriated it for the margins. Um, anyway, given the current associations of the word in Pashtun society, it really seems quite incongruous to cast Taliban in the role of fun-loving rural youth escaping social discipline. And in the contemporary situation, that's really not far off the mark, uh, that incongruity. That's indicative of the changing role of Taliban in the social imagination to some extent. I mean, but more, really, to well-funded networks of a new type of religious student that came to appropriate the label. Nonetheless, they appropriated a label that was rich with pre-existing connotations and which continued to be larger than a single political movement. And that brings me to the last section that I'm going to read here. Then um, we can talk about other things too in Q&A uh, section. But anyway, so from evasion to mobilization and domination. Is there a connection between these older images of people referred to as Talibs and the Taliban that dominate our current perception of the word? In an institutional sense, not at all. Or if so, then only very, very tenuously, and I can't make that connection. Um, but in the world of social imagination, beyond their exclusive control, Taliban insurgents since the 1990s have come to inhabit certain aspects of this older persona, whether they want to or not, especially the trope of the passionate outsider youth that the traditional persona of the Talib articulated. And that had effects on rank-and-file Talibs, regardless of what Islamist ideologues in the movement would have preferred. Um, consider the highly romanticized set of Taliban self-portrait photographs published by Thomas Dvorak, for example, um, in which you see these young Taliban fighters um, in the portraits that they posed themselves for, um, highlighting their beauty with flowers and eyeliner against garden alpine backdrops, and, for example. So such an aesthetic comes into sharper focus through this lens. Um, we can talk about the other aspects of those photos as well later. Um, through this type of imagery, as well as songs related to Taliban political movements, we get a view of self-construction in Talib-related media, so what they decided to portray themselves as. Um, both, well, both by actual Taliban and by people who were sympathetic to the movement, though not part of it. While conducting unrelated field research in Peshawar in 2005, which is why I can't quote these things, I was informed that although the original Taliban have banned music, they benefited indirectly from a rise in popular cassette songs performed with musical accompaniment, like drums and string instruments, by both men and women, 
uh, which celebrated them. Some of them took the form of martyrdom songs, but others were composed in feminine voice, addressing the Talib warrior as a lover. Um, here, longing and the separation of travel, traditional tropes in Talib lore took on new significances. Romanticism of Talib itinerancy uh, became successfully welded with discourses of honorable masculinity prominent in the genres of jihad poetry, which have been written about by like David Edwards and other people. Along with the sort of moral self-alignment involved in composing such works independently, there's also an, a kind of moral self-alignment involved in consuming the works. Um, in an era, at least, when consumers have a pretty wide choice of the things that they're going to buy and listen to, um, or seek out on the internet. And I contend that continued and cumulative interaction with the Talib brand by non-Talib individuals um, through consumption and composition continues to determine the character of that brand over time in the late 20th century public domain. This is especially true in elite counter-narratives, actually, um, leaving these things aside for a minute, that pulled the persona of Talib closer to authoritative or perhaps authoritarian respectability. Of course, romance and fun aren't the only genealogical thread um, worth tracing in this account of Talib as persona. Sincerity, earnestness of um, motive, and morality is another one. So it's a thread worth tugging on, really, when explaining why this countercultural process uh, persona was adopted by those who would choose rule, um, and why some people would have a or seek rule, and why some people would have a, a, a stake in respectability that. Uh, outside of the movement, a stake that extended beyond just the rational calculation of security. Um, we have a parallel rhetoric built up around the Talib persona in the last decade of the 20th century that sublimated youth agency and passionate love uh, bound up in the Talib trope into a sort of pious heroism, um, assimilating it into the abstract world of courtly poetry in the Sabgehindi, like the Indian kind of very abstract hermeneutic style. Um, Right. It assimilated the idea of romanticized countercultural Talib, what I was talking about before, into um, the equally marginal, I guess, yet far more mundane and far more disciplined reality of the stationary village mullah of the 60s and 70s of Afghanistan, described by, among other people, the former Taliban official Mullah Zaif in his recent English autobiography translation. On the revolutionary side of the movement, uh, a lot of poetry composed by higher-ranking officials in Taliban movement uh, as, and in the regime as it consolidated itself especially, took pains to disavow the romanticized persona. So we have one person writing, I write, who was a minister in the government, I write poetry, but I won't write poetry in love of my beloved. I won't write about my beloved's little red lips or cheeks, neither about coquettishness of the beloved or the bad state of the lover in pining. I won't write about the secrets of love or the adornments of freewheeling girls. Um, we should temper that with the view of Mullah Zaif again, who actually in his narrative includes visions of romance in a pure and platonic, yet no less obsessive form, as permeating the everyday life of the movement's original core uh, out in the front lines in the 80s. It's very actually odd to read. Um, <clears throat> and he notes an everyday engagement with poetic forms of self-expression um, that helped constitute the persona of the early movement's leaders at the time. By the time the Taliban had formed a state, complex negotiations were involved in integrating romantic persona into hierarchical discipline, negotiations in poetic genre and in actual life. 
Um, negotiations in the world of genre are illustrated by various aspects of this uh, really I'll admit a far more complex work that I happened upon, a poetry collection entitled Da Patsun Jar, or Voice of the Uprising, printed in Quita in 1997. Um, it was written by a non-Taliban religious scholar and poet named Akhyar, who composed in Sabgehindi style, the consciously classical, neoclassical. He says things like, who is this that refuses love? I don't know whether they're Muslim or infidel. This lamp flame of love is very ancient. It's been a tradition since eternity. Poetry and mullahism are not opposed. I, Hakiar, am both Molana and poet. Um, in a different poem, it takes a, another track entirely from this collection. He, he sort of, uh, oh, anyway. In you, Mahmoud of Ghazni grew up. You raised so many great scholars. You raised up Mirwais and Abdali. You raised up so many strong youths. You're the home of the saints in Kabul and countless shrines. You're the home of mystics and holy men, many renowned personalities. You're a minaret of learning and art, O cradle of sacrificing heroes. You're the minaret of Allahu Akbar, O cradle of the strong and the brave. O homeland of the Amir al-Mu'mineen, uh, Mullah Muhammad Omar, uh, now you too have many strong children. Um, o beautiful and colorful homeland of Hakyar, thank God you have lovely Taliban. But it is not only or even primarily the poetry in this collection that disciplines. Um, it's the dedication and like what he intended the whole thing as a whole to accomplish. Um, like the idea of the project as opposed to individual selections. Um, he dedicated it to the memory of the Pakistan-trained Diobandi intellectual and renowned teacher of Kandahari religious students, Abdul Ghaffar Baryaleh. Bariale himself was an accomplished poet in the Sabgindi style, um, which uses passionate lyric, but in a highly abstract, stylized fashion. Um, Bariale also appears, at least in the 90s, to have enjoyed some status as a spiritual grandfather of the elders of the Kandahar-based Taliban movement, whether that ancestry is real or fictive. But second, the poetry collection was presented in the service of a young Talib who took over from that elder, who was spending the years of his youth in the reform of society, and who was recognized as well-bred because the traces of his father and forefathers are present in him. This is Malawi uh, Wakil Ahmad Mutawakil, the Taliban government's soon-to-be foreign minister. And I suspect that the dedication by Hakyar was made um, by an author, Hakyar, who was cautiously supportive of the Taliban movement, but hoped that his occasionally impressive poetry in this volume might help to humanize and enrich the Taliban leadership and discipline it in the face of more experienced religious authority, as much as he hoped to inspire the movement. Um, but certainly in the selections above, what is notable to me is, first of all, a territorial religious nationalism of Afghanistan claiming the energies of countless youths for itself. Um, uh, and the other thing that's important for me to note is the framing and the dedication that subsumes Talib youth within hierarchies of patriarchal lineage. Um, yet even so, alongside that, there's the celebrated ideal of youthful passion dressed in pious clothing. Why was this a useful persona for Taliban supporters to appropriate on behalf of Taliban and to lionize? Um, perhaps because traditional Taliban life uh, as narrated by multiple sources, was a countercultural force with revolutionary potential, and that was useful to the actual revolutionary movement. So the early Talib persona was perme uh, permeated with this transgressive flavor that carved out an autonomous public zone by virtue of trans-regional mobility. 
but the content of that persona was flexible. Um, and this freedom and horizontalness was easily adoptable as a contrast to new hierarchies created during the Civil War of Afghanistan. Um, new hierarchies that were created and contested by local predatory militia leaders as much as, um, you know, which were every bit or actually quite a bit more even hierarchical and um, uh, local, locally dominating than earlier manifestations of landed power. So everybody knows the traditional, um, at least the Taliban's own version of how they came to be. It was like, you know, you have Tupac Salari and you have Patak Salari, which is essentially rule by the rifle and rule by the checkpoint. So um, once external support for Mujahideen factions dried up, then they started making up the shortfall by extracting resources from local populations rather than international sources. I'm still working within the Taliban's own um, narration of their past. So the countryside fragmented into small and shifting territorial units of depredation. Um, and the story goes, it's actually Taliban who um, kind of broke the power of those highly immoral and highly stratified local predatory units. Um, so therefore, I mean, you see that he, the Taliban themselves, and Mullah Zaif is just another example, are narrating, number one, a constraint on mobility, and number two, hierarchy that's causing problems for everybody, um, which drastically circumscribed the economy of Afghanistan, because uh, right at, at its height, the Taliban movement got most of its revenues not from opium, but from taxing just the massive amounts of Pakistani trade that was going through its borders um, and smugglers. Um, so at the same time as this warlord era, if you want to call it that, circumscribed mobility, it eroded the dignity and honor of everyday people, etc. So here's the usefulness of the Talib trope for the movement. It allowed them to brand a new faction of activists, really supported by Pakistani intelligence to bring security and stability to neighboring Afghanistan and bolster their own interests in the country. Um, it allowed them to brand that as a movement of resistance to fragmentation and local hierarchization of social life. And this is not to discount the real kind of stake that people would have had, particularly on the local level, to ending Patag salary and Topak salary. Um, it was all possible because of two things. The cross-regional, non-territorial nature of religious learning, whether in countercultural or regular student experience, and also traditional ideologies about Talibs, whether or not they reflected most Talibs current actual experience. So the traditional construction wasn't only about Talibs as fun, it was about the fact that these are marginal, which is an alternative expression of masculinity for one, a masculinity that does not depend on Khan kind of politics and the ability to control and dominate others. Um, an alternative sort of masculinity and social morality. Um, the Talib was usually viewed already as a sincere and powerless ascetic in folklore and in contrast to the rapacious Khan, and by extension to the commandant, like the warlord commander, or even the Tupaki, just a random militarized person. As Akhyar's poetry and his dedication to Mutawakil illustrate, so this romanticized yet domesticated passion contributed to supporters' ability to describe them as sincere in their motivations and as pursuing a politics of reform. This was in conscious uh, opposition to the politics of exploitation. Now, um, at the same time, as an ideal of youth, passion was disciplined and channelized into a political military movement by hierarchies of 
urban and locally cosmopolitan Diobundi scholarship, it was still valuable as a popular persona. Um, in periods of Taliban mobilization, both in the 90s and post-2001, uh, these alternative constructions have been cast not only as different and alternative types of morality, but better, morally superior. Um, in other words, hegemonic, without even, like, even when they're not actually in power. Um, and the marginality of Talib social habits that did not seek aggrandizement over those rural poor Pashtuns, which is to say they didn't go around in like large vehicles. They went on foot everywhere and kind of lived in wherever they could. Um, so that was successfully integrated into a narrative of populism, even in a period when they're driving sport utility vehicles. Um, this is part of the continued sticking power of the Talib persona, I contend, as opposed to the actual experience of situations in which Taliban movements have extended their hegemony. Now, so this is about 40, 45 minutes in, um, and I don't kind of want to go any further from here. So what do we say? We could open it up for questions and answers? Yeah, that'd be fine. Sure. Why not? Right. As far as I'm aware, I've never seen anything different. There is a problem in that um, we know that there were women intellectuals. We even know that actually women were some, um, uh, whereas men in a lot of their educational networks would preserve Persian and Arabic, in Pashtun regions, women were literate in Pashto, at least elite women. And actually, it was women who taught kids to read Pashto, as women in the family, as opposed to men. However, um, it's just like photographing women. You just don't write about them. And so uh, in, you know, in any of the sources that I've been able to access, and so, at least not real, like living women of the past. And so um, I really have no way of knowing if there might have been like women Talibs or not. I suspect not. I mean, it doesn't, you know, intuitively, it doesn't seem like something that would happen, but I can't say for sure. Yeah. So there are, there are discourses of you know, criticism of this 
In actual fact, there's a folklore journal that was published in Afghanistan like in the 80s or late 70s and 80s. And I, I ran across, so it had an English index and it like listed the name, uh, translated in a very weird kind of English. Hmm? Yes, it's, it, the magazine is called Folklore. There's a Pashto article. I have a lot of the issues, like in digital. Form. Well, in this one, I mean, apparently, so like the whole, like the groom's, what do you call it, retinue, as they would ride up to the the um, gates of the village. Actually, this was so kind of institutionalized that all the women's family, like with the woman leading them, would dump garbage on them. Uh, so. Hmm. First of all, they have young boys. Um, secondly, who are Talibs? Secondly, though, I mean, it's like maybe they are viewed as having bigger links to a global thing by virtue of their horizontal mobility as opposed to these kind of warlords who are just like a local commander. Yeah. I don't know. Th that would make sense. Yeah. Right. Sure. Right. Interestingly, there's um, there's a chapbook romance which I was going to read uh, if I had time, uh, in which so you have like it updates Talib John Gulbashra into a very very like studiously mundane like present day environment. And so there's this girl, um, her name is just Pashtana, which clearly indicates to me that this is not a name, it just means female Pashtun. And she's like a schoolgirl, and she's reading her book and she finds a note which is like declaring love for her. And she's like, the presumption. I mean, she's horrifically offended. And she, the first thing that she thinks of is that it's gotta be that like young Khan. Because only a Khan would do something like that. So, um, this episode doesn't arise again. It's primarily intended just to uh, illustrate like the go after and get it kind of masculinity as opposed to Talib John, who really plays hard to get for like years in the story. He's just like, he's in town, he leaves town. She, you know, she falls for him. He's like, yeah, okay, whatever. And then he kind of keeps on coming back in town and over time, this whole thing develops. But, you know, it's the opposite of predation as opposed to proto-predation. Directly cast into local territorial control. 
that one was written, I think, I don't, it's not dated, but it's clearly like 2005 or later. Very much, yeah. Um, Can you please talk more about that? Yes, so um, actually rather in, in a similarity to like Taliban, um, so a lot of his kind of activism was directed at forming horizontal links among society. Um, and like to, to kind of defeat the monarchic kind of pyramid structure that was in, in place there as government. And so, this guy, Khamuddin Khadem, uh, he based his political philosophy on Neoplatonism, which is to say, um, he's, uh, his movement is called Wich Zilmian, which means enlightened youth. And enlightenment involves like channeling the Platonic reality of uh, the equality of people into actual contingent realization in the real world. Um, Everything, like all of his political rhetoric that he uses um, in prose or quasi-poetry prose that he writes in Pashto, uses this Platonic vocabulary of like matni uh, as opposed, like um, essence, or kind of spiritual, like realer than real essence of reality and the, um, the world of kind of um, mundane material. So, um, yeah, how is he getting the idea that the essence of the universe has to be equality? I don't know. Um, I haven't really studied too much into uh, Islamic neoplatonistic thought, so I can't really say. But it's clear that he's appropriated that vocabulary to argue it to elites of Afghanistan at the same time as he's using folk poetry to kind of build a mass movement. And actually, you see sort of platonic ideas, if not vocabulary, in the folk poetry as well. Um, Oh, his name is Qiyamuddin Khadem. Uh, Qiyam al-Din Khadem. Yeah. He um, actually, so he started out in one of these mountain village schools. He eventually got to um, lowland kind of village school. He traveled into India. He went as far as like Peshawar. He got sick. He went to uh, another place near Atak. He eventually ended up outside of Delhi, which I suspect is Deoband, but he doesn't say that because Deobandism was illegal in Afghanistan uh, at the time. And then he ended up back in Peshawar uh, right when the, move, the nationalist movement against British colonialism was picking up. And so he's also integrating like um, Urdu public sphere ideas of like equal citizenship uh, and Islamic kind of pan equality, like in ideas that Mulana Abul Kalam Azad was putting forth and people like these. Now um, then he went back to Afghanistan after that and started his own mass movements. Yeah. Really extraordinary biography. 
it's even better that, I mean, you can get it straight from his own mouth, or at least, you know, uh, in some of these Tazkara sources, they actually wrote their own biography and sent it to the editor, and all the editor did was just, like, you know, um, print it. You, like, kind of standardized the spelling, I guess. But you even see, like, dear respected editor of this Tazkara, this is my life, and here's what I did. Things like that. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah. I was just interested in the anthology as the disciplining, <coughs> as the disciplining mechanism. Just because I'm thinking of the analogy to 19th-century folklore collections, hmm. that you know you conscript individuals, you sort of conscript the folk into the nation by creating the folktale anthology, and of course by creating the dictionary, and you sort of have the nation imagined in these hefty forms of the dictionary and the folklore collection right. before you can build it as an actual territory. So I was wondering about the history of anthologies here, if this comes as a sort of modern or western marked publishing format, whether there are older traditions of sort of commonplace books in which poetry would be collected in this kind of wandering way that people sort of picked up things from poets here and there. There were those. Something more about the publishing, the transformation of publishing poetry from these chapbooks to things like anthologies. Um, well, so originally, we have evidence from the 18th century at least that, I mean, there's this, this um, practice called mushayra where this is not, so every, people might be more familiar with the contingent, like face-to-face mushaira, which is like a poetry festival where somebody like hands out a poem and people compose things on top of it. However, there were, um, in response, however, there's also the practice of these kind of things where um, since, we have one that goes since the 18th century till now. So somebody composed like um, a poem and then his son, kind of composed something on top of it, like, which used the rhyme and meter. Um, but at the end, he said, like, he said something like, I, Abdul Qadir, uh, wrote this poem in Pashto, and in doing so, I'd be lying if I say any other Pashtun has ever written something as good. And so this, obviously, really kind of started to um, provoke all the other Pashtun poets in the... So they would... Uh, so we know that from that time, sporadically down the line, other poets have composed that like on top of it, and this thing just kind of spread like a meme throughout the rural society like from then till now. In the 1930s, it finally got published in a newspaper in Afghanistan, and then they started composing nationalist themes on uh, using the same mushaira. So you can actually trace like this development of um, using the qafia radif, like the rhyme of Pashtun, uh, from it's like no other Pashtun's ever done this. So, so that point, the point there is like about broadcasting your own kind of, what do you want to say, masculine competitiveness, actually. It's very kind of full of bravado, um, right down to using the rhyme of Pashtun to talk about nation and those kind of things. Around that time, also in that newspaper, same one, you have a fun intellectuals like, um, writing in about weird words that they've heard in different dialect areas. And then, so it's actually a public kind of, well, public in as much as people who can read and have access to a newspaper, publicly kind of collating dialect words from all over the country and putting them in one place and having a good time, like, talking about it. Then around 
several years after that, you finally get the publication of uh, the first Afghan folklore compendium I can think of, which actually predates some of the Iranian like earlier activi um, activity in the same vein. The first compilation of Afghan folklore, like folk stories, um, taken from poetry, transmuted into prose, um, is called Miliandara, which means mirror of the nation. And so there you go. I mean, it's basically taking all of these folk stories, almost in a way similar to like the dialect words in the earlier activity and jumbling them up into one place, stripping away their local specificity, saying this is a mirror of our nation. Now, I don't know. This is something that was happening in Europe like a couple generations earlier. So is it borrowing or do you want to trace a direct line to the local activities? I think that um, both of them probably built on each other. These people who were compiling anthologies certainly knew what was happening in other countries. So, yeah. Oh, sorry, yeah. It's really quite similar. I mean, so a tazkara is essentially just a, a list of people, and they're a short biographical sketch, and things that they did that's worth noting. Um, and I mean, as far as I'm aware, this genre has existed in Arabic language source. It, basically, every place that um, Islamic literate culture kind of spread. Um, in modern Afghanistan, so actually we have some pre-modern Tuskers, or let's call them early modern Tuskers in Afghanistan that um, usually they're about Sufis, you're right, like saints, and usually they involve like some, uh, some mention of the, the poetry that these people also produced. So try and get some of the poet's own thoughts on something. So just examples. Biographical sketch with example. However, I mean, you can really have a Tusker on any genre of people. And in modern Afghanistan, you get people starting to compile Tuskeras uh, for activist reasons, as far as I can tell, which is, let's get the voices of some poor people into discussion, or rural people, so that you know, kind of, you know, so that the reading public, the people who sit in cities and can uh, kind of access these things once they're printed, are going to realize what everybody else is dealing with in life. I mean. Right. That's right. I mean, yeah, they are. I mean, entirely ideologically shaped. Um, in old days, they tended to be about rural. I mean, um, urban kind of influential people. So, like the Rajal literature in uh, Arabic countries. Is, I mean, it's like an urban cross section. A lot of it. Uh, at least the ones that I'm familiar with. Uh, in Afghanistan, there are these like Tabqati and Nasiri, these kind of works, which, yeah, so they, they purport to show a cross-section of all the different categories of life. And so in so constructing the categories, you kind of reinforce categories of people. And in the modern era, uh, you get a reshuffling of what categories people consider to be important.
In fact, I wish there were more Tezkiras that talked about kind of even rural elites uh, further back than there are, but it's really kind of slim pickings. Yeah, exactly. Thanks.